0: The Woodside Church podcast. Thank you, Ensign, for that introduction. Um, I suppose many of you will know that today is Palm Sunday, and that will be being celebrated in many churches across the world today. People will be remembering when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. <coughs> and he was welcomed by the crowds and they threw palm branches in front of him, showing their belief that he was, they thought, their long-awaited Messiah. And so begins what has traditionally become known as Holy Week or Passion Week. And we remember the events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and, of course, to his glorious resurrection. So we're working through a series, Uh, it's called A Piercing Quiet, and this morning's focus uh, brings us to the trials of Jesus, which led to him being sentenced to a cruel execution on a Roman cross, on a hill outside Jerusalem. And this morning we're going to be looking at um, what I'm calling an almost silent defense. Can I start by praying? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Bible. We thank you that it is our handbook for life. We thank you that it tells us so much about you. It tells us all we need to know, but above all, it shows us that your son, the Lord Jesus, came to die on a cross for us sinners. And we are so grateful. As we've sung, we love you for the cross. And Lord, as we look at your word this morning, may we come closer to you. May we learn something even more about your character, your love, and your care for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, Although we've been mainly following the events up to Easter through the Gospel according to Matthew, uh, we can't ignore the fact that all four Gospels actually record, sometimes in a different way, the events up to and including the crucifixion. And I'm really grateful to an American theologian and author called Daniel Jones, Dr. Daniel Jones, who has amalgamated the four gospels into one story. So what we're going to read, if you try to follow it in Matthew, it might say Matthew up there, you might have some difficulty because it will include um, some of the things which are recorded by the other gospel writers. And our reading takes up the story of of Passion Week when Jesus has been arrested. It's about six o'clock in the morning and he's already been informally interrogated by Annas. Now, he is an influential former high priest, and he has ordered that Jesus be taken to the Sanhedrin, uh, where the current high priest is Joseph Caiaphas, and he's in fact Annas' son-in-law. So let's take up the story, if we can, from there. When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for further false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward, for many were giving false testimony against him, and yet their testimony was not consistent. And some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, we heard him say I will destroy this temple made with hands and in three days I will build another made without hands and not even in this respect was their testimony consistent and the high priest Joseph Caiaphas stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus saying do you make no answer what is it then that these men are testifying against you but he kept silent He made no answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, yes. I am. And tearing his clothes, the high priest said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy ourselves from this, his own mouth. What do you think? How does it seem to you? And they answered and said, He is deserving of death. Then some men who were holding Jesus in custody began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and were mocking him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hits you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. Now when morning came, they bound him and led him away and delivered him up to Pilate, the governor. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked them saying, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, it is as you say. While he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he made no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him, with regard to even a single charge, so that the governor was quite amazed. And Pilate came out again and said to them, behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus therefore came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold, the man. I don't know about you, but Carol, my wife, and I are intrigued by those reality TV programs you, you get on, generally on Channel 4, about um, crime solving, uh, police solving crime. Things like 999, Police Night Shift, and um, 24 Hours in Police Custody. And these featured, do not they, real-life videos of the interviews uh, with uh, suspected suspects in the police station and the tactics used by the interrogating detectives they can be really fascinating especially when the suspect decides to exercise his or her rights to remain silent or simply respond to every question with no comment even though They will have been given a caution. you, You do not have to say anything, but it may harm your defense if you do not mention when questioned something which you later rely on in court. Anything you do say may be used in evidence. Sometimes people use this right to remain silent and take it too literally. Like Jim, who said to Harry, his friend, Look, he said, I have to go to the police station for an interview and I'm feeling really nervous about it. And Harry, his friend said, you know, you don't have to answer any questions, just say no comment to everything. A few days later, the two friends met again and Harry asked Jim, how did the police interview go? And Jim answered, well, not as well as I'd hoped. I took your advice I said no comment to every question. And as a result, I didn't pass the interview for the job I was applying for. (laughs) The, The Bible records for us things which Jesus said as he was dying on the cross. Yet he largely, not entirely, but remained silent before the Sanhedrin. And when brought in front of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. They were almost, weren't they, no comment interviews. And I wonder why so let's look at the Sanhedrin what was the Sanhedrin it's it's from a Greek word which means assembly or council and it's a concept which goes right back to God's commands to Moses when he said you shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns which the Lord God is giving you according to your tribes and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment now by the time of Jesus Just about every small village or town would have its own Sanhedrin. If a town was small, it would be as few as probably just seven judges who sat as a court, acting as both judge and jury on all legal matters. The Sanhedrin usually consisted of two main religious groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And if you can't remember much about the difference between them, you see, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, which made them Sadducee. That's just about landed, hasn't it? Okay. Uh, the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem was the supreme court of ancient Israel. It was made up of 70 men and the high priest, and it convened every day in the temple except at festival times and on the Sabbath. And the Sanhedrin claimed powers that lesser Jewish courts didn't have. It was a court where all questions of Jewish law were finally decided. The Sanhedrin was still allowed to exist under Roman rule, but their power was limited. They could find a person guilty and they could give the death sentence, but they couldn't carry it out. Only the Romans could put a person to death. But why did Jesus so often say silent before his accusers? And I want to suggest to you three reasons. The first is, he is in control. If ever there was a miscarriage of justice with mock trials, this or these were those. They demonstrated the hatred that the Jewish religious uh, rulers had for Jesus. And their absolute determination to put him to death and I think there's a slide coming up where there are several reasons uh, why it was a miscarriage of justice there was no legal basis for Jesus's arrest the indictment against him was illegal because the judges themselves brought the charge without any prior testimony from witnesses and the Sanhedrin was not allowed by law to originate the charges The law did not uh, permit the trial of a capital offense to begin on a Friday or on the day before an annual festival, which it was, and his trial was concluded in one day when it's supposed to take three days. The court illegally switched the charges from blasphemy to treason, so when the case came before Pilate, Pilate had a reason to judge it. And Jesus' opponents wanted him killed but they didn't want to do it themselves. Therefore, they charged him with treason, which became a crime against Rome, so the Romans would then be responsible for his death and not them. You see, the Jewish authorities were on a mission to get rid of Jesus, but they didn't understand that Jesus was about a greater mission. In Luke's Gospel, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. See, the crowds following him were large, and they were growing. It was safer for him, actually, to stay in the northern regions away from Jerusalem, because arrest by Jewish or Roman authorities far less likely there. But this is Jesus. This is Jesus, a God-man, on a mission, and in control, resolutely doing his Father's will. See, Jesus wasn't accidentally caught up in some tangled web of injustice. God planned it all out of his great love for people like us, and he appointed a time. And Jesus was the very embodiment of his Father's love for us sinners. He set his face to fulfill his mission, to take the penalty for our sin, to take the penalty and the punishment for our rebellion against God and to do it on a cross near Jerusalem for our sake. He's in control. He hadn't resisted arrest. When one of his followers had taken up a sword to fight, he rebuked him, saying, do you not think I could call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then, he said, would the the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? And don't forget the words of Isaiah prophesied 700 years previously. He was opposed and oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus is on trial. It's unfair. It's totally unjust, but he's in control. He had said previously, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He remains in control today. Today, he's still in control. After all, he's the one who was there at the very beginning. He's the one who spoke the universe into space. He was the one who flew the stars into space. He was in control. He is in control. He will always be in control. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. He is in control. Whether it's finding a glove or whether it's dealing with your sickness, your illness, your worries, your anxieties. Put your trust in the one who is in control. Now this next reason I want to give for him being quiet might surprise you. He is the judge. Why did the Jewish authorities hate him so much? They were jealous of him. Everywhere he went, he attracted huge crowds, multitudes, pressing in, wanting to listen to his every word and watching his every move. But the Jewish authorities, on the other hand, they laid heavy burdens on the people. They regarded ordinary people with a spirit of disdain and scorn. While they wouldn't think of going into the home and having dinner with a tax collector, Jesus did exactly that. He freely associated with people whom the Pharisees considered to be rabble. The only thing the Pharisees looked at was people's sin. And so they had a contempt for common people. Another reason why they hated him was because he exposed them Before Jesus came, it was the Pharisees in particular, as well as the Sadducees and the scribes and people, who set the moral standard for the community. They sat in the highest places in the synagogue. They were the ones who were most honored and celebrated for their so-called virtue. But their virtue, as Jesus taught repeatedly, was a pretense. It was external religion, a phony righteousness. He said to them, you're like dead man's tombs, whitewashed tombs that are painted without blemish on the surface, but inside they're filled with dead man's bones. Woe, he said to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you shut the door on the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. How to win friends and win influence, yeah. Yeah, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, priests found it easy to get rid of Jesus. So Jesus mostly remained silent, even when he was falsely accused, because he knew that the trials were illegal, founded on false accusations, born out of hatred. But I think we can wonder whether Jesus, the sinless, innocent God-man had in mind that one day he will judge them. The tables will be turned when the day comes when he judges. He will decide the eternal fate of those who believed in him and those who rejected him. You see, God has set a day when everyone, all of us, will be judged and his appointed Jesus be the judge this won't be a revengeful judgment not not Jesus getting his own back the religious leaders had every chance to accept him as the Messiah but they rejected him and Jesus had repeatedly prophesied that he would suffer and be rejected by the elders chief priests and teachers they must have heard him quote about himself from Psalm 118 have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus had told his followers how he had been given the authority to judge by the Father. Roman uh, In John 5, to 23, he says, moreover the, judge, the Father judges no one, but entrusted all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Yeah, Jesus came into the world from his Father, who so loved the world, yes, of course, to save those who put their trust in him, Jesus. But his second coming, and there is to be a second coming, will also bring judgment. And it is Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, 2 Timothy one. Because Jesus is both God and man, He is to be the perfect judge of everyone. His judgment will be fair and perfectly just. For he, God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to everyone by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. You know, we often talk about and celebrate quite rightly the truth about God's wonderful, lavish Love, grace, mercy and forgiveness, wonderful truths. But there is also the truth, there is to be a reckoning, a judgment. For the Pharisees, for the Sadducees, for the teachers of the law, for his Roman executioners, and for us, all of us. I want to say something, confession time. I have been a judge, well I've been a magistrate. So if you've got penalty points on your license right now, it was probably done by post, it was nothing to do with me. But I share this with you because I've sat in court and I have seen people being found innocent uh, of all sorts of offenses. I've seen the relief, I've seen the utter elation. I've seen people walk out of a court punching the air with relief. I'm innocent. How much more will we rejoice when we are found innocent? Sometimes people say, I can't understand why people in some of these churches, these so-called contemporary, why, why do they get so excited about praising God? We've been found innocent, folks. Right, we're walking out of the court free because somebody else has taken the penalty for us how much more can we rejoice now knowing that we will be found innocent have you rejected Jesus I hope not are you sure you haven't rejected him it's not too late to accept him now as your Savior and your Lord more of that in a moment because you see he is innocent the opposite of no comment or silence is to try and explain yourself. You say, I know this looks bad, but it wasn't me, it was somebody else. I can explain myself, I've got excuses. It's not true, I never said those things. Oh, it's no big deal anyway, is it? Anyway, what you're accusing me of is nonsense, It's ridiculous, it's absurd. You know, I can't even be bothered to answer your stupid questions. So bring on all those so-called witnesses. Staying completely silent could have led Jesus to being set free, who knows, but he says just enough to be sent to his death on the cross. This is why I say it's an almost silent defense because he does speak. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin for us does not mean that Jesus was sin. Or a sinner or guilty of sin in fact he was innocent indeed Pilate the Roman governor finally declared I find no guilt in him remember his betrayer Judas distraught at what he had done finally said I have sinned because I have betrayed innocent blood The centurion who oversaw his execution on the cross, he would declare, surely this was a righteous man. One of the criminals on the cross next to Jesus would rebuke the other criminal saying, we're punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man, Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. Jesus was innocent and so he becomes our innocence but in a bit of another way he was righteous and he becomes our righteousness the word for this is, is innocence is imputed to us so that in him we might become the righteousness of god so that to impute something is to ascribe or to attribute it to someone on the cross our sin was imputed to is laid on jesus That's how Jesus paid our sin debt to God. He took the just penalty that our sin deserves. So by putting our trust and our faith in that fact, Jesus, his righteousness, his innocence is imputed to us. Now, this is the gospel. (laughs) This is the good news. I tell you what it's more than good it's fantastic some people would say it's outrageous because that sounds too good to be true but it is true we're not righteous ourselves rather his righteousness is applied to us when we put our faith in him when we put our faith in him when we as Franz said earlier when we just believe That's outrageous. It's too simple. It can't be. It's got to be more than that. I've got to do things, haven't I? To get this righteousness, get this innocence before God. I've I've got to go to church every Sunday. No. I've got to do good things. No. I've got to give money to charity. No. What have I got to do? Just believe. You know, something's been mentioned earlier about a little course we're gonna be doing called Asking the Big Questions. And I do encourage you, if you've still got big questions, and I've still got big questions after 35 years of being a Christian, right? Please come and join us, uh, Joe and uh, Sarah, myself, uh, and, and do this short course. We'll look at all sorts of things, from how do we know there's a God right, through to why Jesus died on a cross, and what about the church? We'll have fun doing it, and we can ask the big questions. And before I just move on, I want to say that through somebody in the congregation today whom I completely trust for her prophetic gifting has told me that there are two people here this morning who need, for the first time, to put their trust in Jesus. Simply believe. And if you are one of those two people, You'll know it. That feeling you've got, the heartbeat's going quicker, isn't it? That's the Holy Spirit. That's God speaking to you. And please, I beg you, don't go away without speaking to Ensign, myself, Hudson, somebody you've seen at the front. Just come and say, I'm one of those two people. Because we'll just pray for you. You won't have to do anything, but we really want you to know the innocence and the righteousness being imputed to you, that Jesus has won for you. And although time's running out, I want to move on to the slide that says he spoke the truth. Jesus spoke the truth in a situation where he was being persecuted, ridiculed, bullied, and falsely accused. The high priest said to him, Tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on clouds of heaven. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. Because he was speaking the truth. We need to remember that Jesus actually promised us, promises us persecution. When God came as a man in the person of Jesus, the world responded by murdering him. Jesus tells us that the world will treat us the way it treated him. If the world hates you, he said, keep in mind that it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And he also says to us, blessed are you, yeah, blessed are you, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and insult you, and reject uh, your name as evil because of the Son of Man. I've been drawn more and more the last few days preparing this to part of Ecclesiastes. 3, 17 from the Old Testament. There is a time to be silent, but there's a time to speak. This is about persecution of Christians in the, in the early centuries of the church, isn't it That's what it's about. Today we tend to think of Christian persecution as being some things which happen in the Islamic Hindu world, in the communist parts of the world. Being a follower of Jesus means at best losing your job, being rejected by your family. At worst, it can mean imprisonment, beating, even death. These things are being experienced all over the world right now by our brothers and sisters in Christ. And yes, even in the UK. In July 2019, Dr. Bernard Randall delivered a sermon in a school chapel. The sermon was moderate, encouraged respect, and he said it was all right for the pupils to disagree with LGBT teaching. He was reported to the government's terrorist watchdog, Prevent. He lost his employment at the school. And at the tribunal, the judge basically said that Bernard's biblical belief in teaching that marriage should only be between one man and one woman was extreme. He lost his job. For 15 years, David McConnell has preached from the Bible on the streets of Leeds. He was recently found guilty of a public order offence by magistrates after he repeatedly called a transgender woman a gentleman while addressing the crowd. He was reported to the police and received a sentence of 80 hours unpaid work. In Birmingham, a Christian lady, Isabel Vaughan Spruce, was arrested for praying in her head in the vicinity of an abortion clinic even though the court had previously said said that silent praying was not a crime. Dr. Aaron Edwards, a lecturer at a well-known UK Bible college has been dismissed because he tweeted on social media that the practice of homosexuality is a sin. You know, it seems that all of us, like Jesus, are standing in a court. It's called the court of public opinion. Church, I'm not sure how much longer people like me will be able to stand in pulpits or up on the stage and preach the truth without being arrested. On the streets, in buildings like this, we're in a battle. We're in a conflict. So what must we do? God's word tells us that there is a time to be silent and a time to speak. I think we must pray, first of all. That our is not against flesh and blood, let's remember that. It's against the powers of this dark world and the evil in it. I mean, Paul wrote to Timothy saying, I urge then first of all that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness we must pray for those in authority including leaders of some churches where they are adopting doctrine which is clearly against 2,000 years of biblical belief we must pray we must pray there's a conflict on we must be ready Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Whatever we say, we do not say through gritted teeth. We do not say it with anger. Perhaps a little bit of righteous anger, but we do not do it that way. We do it with love and respect and gentleness. But we speak the truth while we can. And we must continue to speak the word of God boldly When the early church were persecuted and Peter and John came back because they had been judged by the Sanhedrin, if you remember, the church were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. We have to be ready to speak the truth in love. We don't do it with anger. As I said before, we don't do it through gritted teeth because we're not self-righteous. Our righteousness, as we've heard, only comes from Jesus but we are to be salt and light. And we're to shine the light in dark places and we're to be salty. And what will we say? Jesus has told us, when you're brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you. Will teach you at that time and what you should say so church some hard truths perhaps i've spoken about today about jesus being a judge judge of us all about persecution these are these are true but we have we have a god who's in control we have a god a saviour who was innocent and we have a saviour who boldly spoke the truth even when he was being persecuted and a reminder that we do these things only because of the power that the holy spirit can put into each one of us to be bold whether we're talking to our family our work colleagues our neighbours a chance meeting whatever it might be God will tell you what to say. And let's all remember that we're not ashamed of the gospel, are we? We're not ashamed of the gospel, are we? No. Shall we stand? Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for your utter obedience to your Father your utter determination to fulfill the mission, that you went to Jerusalem at that time, the right time in obedience to your Father, that you suffered the accusations that were false. You knew it was all a mock. You knew it wasn't fair, but you did it for us. And you faced the humiliation, the utter humiliation, the pain, the agony of the cross, and you did it for us because you were the perfect God-man. And when on the cross you looked down at those around you and you said, it is finished, you were saying that basically all of our sin and rebellion against God has been dealt with, once and for all. And Lord, as I've said earlier, for us the requirement is to regard you as our Savior and our Lord more than that regard you but to love you as our saviour and our lord lord help us as we go from this place tomorrow and the day after and the week after and the months after and the years to come to always be those who speak the truth in love about who you are and what you've done for us in jesus name amen